On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are talking about the throne speech that was given in the Ontario legislature today. What does it mean? I mean, we know what it means. We we heard the words, but does it really mean what they say? Do we expect that the stuff that was talked about is really going to happen? Well, we'll talk about that. We're also going to be talking with Don Robertson about baseball's dropping batting averages and who should be on Team Canada for the Olympics and would you get vaccinated for $15 million, even if you were hesitant? How does that factor into sports? Oh, stick around and you'll find out. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. So today, if you were listening to the news, you know this. Today was the throne speech at Queen's Park. Kind of a, well, you know what a throne speech is. Kind of an outline, I guess, or a, a look ahead. A, a It kind of combines the recap and the look ahead. Here's what we promised. Here's what we're going to do. Here's where things are going. It's it's all very optimistic and happy and promising and all those kind of things until, until the opposition gets up and has their response to it. And then everything's horrible. And you know, that happens everywhere, no matter what government is in office. So what did today say and what should we take from it? I want to bring in Dr. Ian Lee, associate professor with the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. He joins us now. Dr. Lee, thank you for the time today. Always appreciate your time. Uh, my pleasure, Scott. So these things, these, these throne speeches, they're not exactly a campaign speech, but they tend to have more than a little of that in them, their, their promises and all the other things I just said. Do you think people right now, after coming out of a federal election, are all politicked out and they just hear this stuff and it's like blah, 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 because they don't even pay attention? Or are they really geared into what's being said? Um, I think it's a little bit of both. And, and I mean by that, I'm not sitting on the fence on your question. I, I think we are tired of politics because we've gone through so many elections, federal and provincial, in the With last... With more to come several years of more to come. Um, but I thought that the throne speech today captured a phrase I like to use. It captured the zeitgeist. Mm. It captured how we feel. Not because he promised anything radical or big change, but precisely because it didn't. It said, look, everybody, not going to raise your taxes. We're not going to cut any programs. So anything you're dependent on from government, you're not going to get cut. And given all the talk right now, a lot of rumors, first off, there's inflation, food prices are going through the roof, carbon taxes are going up, our gasoline uh, is going up, our home heating is going up. There's a lot of rumors floating around that the the next federal budget is going to increase the HST. Some are saying they're going to go after the uh, capital gains and put a capital gains on on private homes. And so I thought that coming out and saying, look, everybody, you don't have anything to worry about from us. We're not going to whack you. We're not going to tax you. We're not going to cut you. It's just we're just going to go along smooth. And I think that they captured it and got it right. And that's what people wanted to hear. It wasn't the details or the particular words. They wanted reassurance that their government is not going to come after them, no matter what the the, the line or the justification in, provided. A great point, great line you just said there, not just the zeitgeist line, although that's a good one. It'll, you'll be the only person on this show, I assure you, who uses the word zeitgeist tonight. <laughs> but you said what people want to hear, and look, that there's cynicism in that also, because we just, in the federal election, politicians, leaders saying whatever they thought people wanted to hear, 
Doug Ford now in this throne speech says that, as you say, we're not going to come after you, but we've got a huge deficit. We've got a huge debt. He says growth is going to carry us. We're not going to cut anything. We're not going to raise your taxes. Is that even possible? Well, now that's the second. Uh, He spelled it the vision. Now can he execute? You know, I'm a, I'm a big, Scott, I'm a big NFL junkie, you know, and, and I say, you, I tell my students, because like, they use it as a metaphor in my class, you can walk in with the greatest game plan, and then you start playing the other team, and your game plan goes out the window because they, they, they annihilate you, you know? Yep, so yep. It, my point being that it's yet to be seen. If the growth comes, yet to be seen, but if it does, Yes, I do believe that they can whittle down the deficit with uh, the growth without taxes as long as they don't introduce new sp- major new spending programs. So can they get the growth, and can they discipline their appetite governments to continually increase spending for new programs? That's yet to be seen. Mm. Yeah, Mike Tyson used to be the one who said, everyone has a game plan until you get punched in the face. Exactly, and, exactly. And, That's a great And line. you know what? And you, you got to believe that COVID was the punch in the face. Everyone has a game plan and then COVID comes along and now everything gets thrown out the window. But is this a get back on track throne speech or is this, we're still scrambling throne speech? I thought it was, he was trying to project that, look, we're now we're looking beyond COVID. I'm maybe I'm an eternal optimist, but I think a year from now, Scott, I really do believe that a year from now, we won't be talking about COVID. It'll be in the rearview mirror, partly because it'll be three years have gone mm-hmm. by, partly because every day that goes by, yet more are being vaccinated. And then all the history of different pandemics, they, the, 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 the uh, virus does die out. It doesn't go on forever. The famous Spanish flu of 1918-19 wasn't 1918-1980. It was a two-year thing. So they do burn out, so to speak, and this will burn out, and I don't predict when, but it's not going to go two years, five years, ten years, longer into the future. So he's really, I think, trying to point towards the post-COVID COVID world in Ontario and saying, look, we're going to hopefully, we're not hopefully, so we're going to go for growth, and we're going to use growth as our strategy to keep taxes flat, no increases, and without cutting any programs while still balancing the budget. There, in a nutshell, is the vision. One of the real points of emphasis that was made in this throne speech was one of the biggest goals that this province is going to have is no more lockdowns. We are not going back to lockdowns. Is that a good thing to build optimism on, or is that a risky thing to build optimism on right now? Um, I think it's a good thing. Um, I've been, from the very beginning, I was, criti- I was critical, not of lockdowns. I was critical of the throw, you know, as much tomato sauce on the wall and hope a little bit sticks. In other words, it was indiscriminate lockdowns. And I argued, and others did too, we had to be much more surgical, no pun intended, much more precise and targeted. In fact, in the throne speech today, the precise words, I'll quote it, if additional public health measures are needed, they will be localized and targeted. This, I think, is what people want to hear. It also helps, by the way, that we're up to 86% of peop- of residents in Ontario have had at least one vaccine dose. And uh, those with two doses, I think, are at 65 or 70%. So he's got the wind at his back, meaning, uh, you know, he probably couldn't have said that 
a year and a half or two years ago. But when you've got that high levels of vaccination, it's easier to say, look, we're not going to go down that road again. But it's not just about politics. Uh, I think it's prudent because uh, for anybody who's sitting there swearing already at me saying this, <laughs> we have to remember lockdowns hurt people. They hurt the most vulnerable people. They were young people, immigrants. So, you know, it didn't hurt us older people. We sat at home, continued to get our paycheck as teachers and professors and public servants. The entire public service, we didn't get laid off. But it fell disproportionately on small business and young people and immigrants. And, and so it's very easy for the most privileged people like me and teachers and professors and public servants to say, shut it down, shut it down. But we're posing, imposing the cost on the most vulnerable. And that's not socially right. That's not social justice, to use their phrase. So I think that he's under, he recognizes that, and he's trying to steer a, a fine line between, on the one hand, saying, yes, and we may have to have localized lockdowns, senior citizens' homes, for example, long-term care homes, but without saying we're going to do it across the board to everybody and hurt uh, the most vulnerable people in, in our society. We also saw that one of the things, and we touched on this last segment, but the growth, the, re, the, the re, rebound is going to be based on growth as opposed to tax increases or cuts to anything. Now, COVID clearly landed in this government's lap. They didn't arrive expecting this. Um, they had come into power in, not entirely, but in large measure that they were going to clean up the economic mess left, left by the McGuinty and Wynn governments. It doesn't sound, though, like that is still the plan. Have they abandoned that out of necessity, or is somehow that still built in? It sure sounds like they've abandoned it. Um, I I never bought the... Uh, I'm a fiscal conservative, as you know, Scott, but I never bought this, you know, you hear it from periodically from Republicans in the States and conservatives in Canada, waste, fraud, and abuse. Well... <laughs> I have a lot of friends in the public service. My late father was 42 years in the public service. I did my Ph.D. in public policy and the economics of public policy. And I just don't believe there's a huge amount of waste, fraud, and abuse. Uh, But having said that, there are some tough policy choices. You know, uh, pharmacare for everybody so that high-income people like professors and teachers get free drugs. Or should we be supporting targeted pharmacare to low-income people. These are the kinds of decisions that will have to be made that Premier Ford did not talk about, because there's tough choices coming down the pipes with the aging of society. Very soon, in a very in five or seven or eight years, we're going to be, just like Florida, one in four over 65 but we won't have the nice weather of the beaches of Florida. <laughs> that's true. Or the, or the old guys wearing Speedos. So there's always the yeah. positive with that. Yes, yes. Uh, and, and also with the finances, though, there's also the issue that we're now into year four of this government. They are heading towards an election next year. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no party in that position wants to start hacking stuff. They want to be Santa Claus. They want to keep the good times rolling so people think highly of them, not, thinks, not as mad at them when the election rolls around. Scott, you're absolutely right. In fact, I think he's trying to, I mean, I, I, and maybe I'm being crazy here, but I don't think so. I I see he's talking more and more like the late, very distinguished Bill Davis. I grew up as a kid with Bill Davis, and he was happy, happy, happy all the time. And everybody loved him on the left, the middle, and the right. 
he was he he was amazing, and and he struck the he walked right down the middle. He was very very centrist, and he wasn't a a right wing conservative, and he certainly he was a red Tory really. And and my point being, he you know uh, Bill, uh, Premier Ford is trying to go down that road, and I mean by that he's not promising to savage public expenditures. So that's not going to alienate people on the left-hand side of the spectrum, or at least you know to the slightly left of center. And on the other hand, he's saying to conservatives, "Don't worry, we're going to we're going to focus balance the budget, but we're going to do it through growth, which is music to a, a fiscal conservative." So I think he's doing. If I can say something so crazy, I, I think he's trying to do a, 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 a Bill Davis. Yeah, I just the the difference would be I'm not I, I it seems as though there's a lot more fractions now and a yeah. lot more I mean the the people who don't like Doug Ford are not going to start liking Doug Ford all of a yeah. sudden and so I think his bigger risk quite honestly is losing his base rather than winning over those who already hate him and aren't going to change their mind. Scott, I don't dispute that. I, I agree with you. But elections are in the middle, are, are, are found, are, are won in the middle. And, and you're quite right. Progressive woke are never going to, you know, it's anathema for them to even, you know, they almost spit. And, and I have deep understanding of progressive woke because I'm in the world headquarters of progressive woke called the, the university. Yeah. And I don't mean mine. I'm talking universities generally. Uh, but you're right. He can't to go over there. But he can certainly do that sort of, you know, what he's just doing. You know, we're going to achieve uh, growth. We're going to address the budget deficit with growth. We're not going to increase taxes, and we're not going to cut spending. So I think that that's that balanced approach that he, I, I think he thinks is going to be the uh, is going to uh, lead to his reelection. We shall see. We've now got uh, it's June, so what's that about eight months before yeah. we have the next election, and uh, yeah. we'll see if this throne speech helps him or. More what? Ian Lee, Dr. Ian Leaf, the Associate Professor with the Sprott School of Business at Carleton University. Always appreciate your time. Thank you for this. My pleasure, Scott. Thanks. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let us bring in Don Robertson, the owner and the operator of the Dundas Real McCoys, who have to be getting close to restarting again now after so much time away, and the guy behind ComChoice Realty. And the guy who is the odds-on favorite, the heavy wagering favorite to be the Dundas Citizen of the Year in 2021. Probably the first show tonight, I'm thinking, Don, that you have not been doing this from the back patio of Robertson Acres. Little little misty out there tonight. Sitting on the back patio, Scott, you I are. am. Wow. Watching some, some of the mist and the fog come in, actually. It's a little chilly, but it's all right. I'm going to enjoy it as long as I can. Yeah, just watch out. If you see the hound of the Baskervilles walking across there, you might want to move inside. Well, there's some some strange noises come out of there sometimes. <laughs> Sousa Suze said, you should go see what, what that is. I said, I'm good here. Suze <laughs> apparently, apparently is the person who watches the, or writes the scripts for all the Friday the 13th, the 13th movies. Because in all of those movies, the idiot teenagers who are at the summer camp hear noises coming out of a barn and think we better go explore that rather than let's run far away from those noises <laughs> yeah. i kind of think if she's curious enough she could scoot down <laughs> i give her a flashlight it's not like i'm mean that's right a flashlight and a shovel knock yourself out not literally but you know <laughs> that could happen too yeah. uh let's don let me i want to ask you there was a um we got a lot of things to get to today but I don't know, and I have not been able to find the rules of this, but Canada's Olympic hockey team announced their first three players this week. 
And apparently all the teams that are going to be competing in Beijing, assuming we're going, have to, in the next few days, put out a list of their three players. I assume this is a marketing thing so that advertising can be drawn up and stuff and, you know, they can have stuff ready to go rather than everything being dumped all at once. But nonetheless, Canada put out its first three players to be named to the Olympic team. Sidney Crosby, Connor McDavid, Alex Petrangelo. Would those have been your first three players that you would have named to Canada? And again, I'm assuming that it could have been any position or anything else. Would those have been your first three? Well, uh, two of them would have been. Probably, yeah. Yeah, McDavid and and Crosby. I mean, he's going to play, obviously. Um, I mean, it's not like he's 42 years old. And uh, yeah, I I don't see anything wrong with the people. I mean, maybe... uh, uh, Almost said Patrick Waugh. That would have been odd. Uh, maybe Carey Price could have been thrown into the mix, but I think if I'm the GM, though, I want to see how close he is to last year's playoff performance through the regular season before I'm on for him. He's not a rookie. Uh, he's not a young man, and if he carries on the way he did, then he's probably got a shot at it. So I think I'd have held off on naming him. He's He named pretty three safe guys. I mean... I guess you could have named some others, but uh, I, what I find strange is why are they naming three? I, it, marketing can be the only explanation, as you pointed out, Scott, because otherwise, what are you naming three for? I mean, yeah, I assume you're I doing this just to try and build some buzz and to have people talking about it a little, because I haven't really heard a whole lot of talk about it. But I just I, like I wonder, Don, if you were okay, if you were in this position, if you're Hockey Canada and you're part of the decision making. Do you want to name your three best players or do you want to name your three most marketable players? And either way, I'm not sure Alex Petrangelo is on there. I mean, I don't know how you don't have, as you said, Carey Price or Nathan McKinnon even as your guy. I just, I, I'm trying to understand the the Alex Petrangelo decision. Good player, real good player, but I don't see him as being a selling point or as one of your absolute, absolute best. Yeah, no, I... There, I mean, there are other, there were other options. I think he probably just picked two forwards and a defenseman based on ratio, right? You've got, uh, you know, you're going to have more forwards than you are defensemen, so you picked two and one. I think that would have been part of the argument. I mean, I don't think this is going to be as big an argument as who who is left off the team. Of course, that's always the case, right? Like. Uh, whether it's a Hall of Fame or whatever it is, um, um, it's it, there's always going to be arguments on who's left off. I mean, generally speaking, everybody's good at saying, yeah, we really like the team, but why didn't Scott Radley make it? And then I like the argument when you say, okay, take somebody off. We'll put Radley on. Who goes off? And then, and then, And then the conversation starts, right? For anyone who's just tuned in and heard my name just thrown out as part of the Olympic men's hockey team, you, your your drink has not been spiked. You're not high on LSD right now. That was simply an example by Don. <laughs> that, uh, any Olympic hockey team, I don't care how deep Canada is, if I'm on the team, things are going horribly, horribly askew, Don. Um, but yeah, it's you know, it, there's going to be some interesting guys this year. There, there really are some 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 players that have not been in the mix before and some guys who have always been there i think now we may be at that changing of the guard a little bit i mean does john does john Tavares automatically make the team 
Does Steve Stamkos automatically make the team just because they've always been there? Does Patrice Bergeron make the team automatically because he's been there? Probably him more than the others, I would think. Yeah, I would think so. And um, and, and this is always the challenge, and this is where it gets interesting for the GM and the coaches who all have their favorites, right, and like what people do. Um, I would imagine a lot of the hockey guys are golf guys. I mean, most hockey players, a lot of them golf in the summertime, as do the executives based on the seasonal play of hockey. Um, And if they were watching the Ryder Cup and what the U.S. did and didn't carry a lot of what you would think would be the um, regulars to the tournament and the success they had, I mean, sports is a copycat sports, whether it's NBA and somebody wins it two years in a row and that's the type of team you have to build. I know it's a different sport, but it, 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 it took some guts to do what they did for the U.S. Ryder Cup team and bringing the up-and-comers in and getting that success. You know, does that, I mean, does that open the door for a Mitch Marner to play um, instead of a John Tavares? I don't know. I mean, um, it's, it's going to be on Olympic-size ice, which, which is pretty standard. And uh, speed's going to be important, uh, maybe as important as hockey IQ in some situations. So it will depend on, like if you earmark John Tavares as a, uh, a goal scorer and a point producer, then and uh, you've got nine guys ahead of him on, in, on that front and you want to shut down setup, I've never been a big fan of having somebody that's traditionally an offensive player and uh, now trying to convert him because he's a good offensive player. He'll be really good at defense. That's not always the case. I mean, uh, with real McCoys, we, we don't uh, generally or always use your most skilled guys to go shut somebody down. Inherently, that's not the role that they excel at, and it's not a role that they want to you know, put their arms around and hug. They'll do it, but are they the best at it? And uh, if they've got three real good checking guys and do they take them over a, a Traveris and uh, that's how Traveris doesn't make the team. You pick the guys that can do the job for you and you have a game plan going in. That's how guys like Traveris can likely get moved out and guys like Marner can get moved in. Um, so they've, they've got some challenges as, as always. And, and there should be, we're very lucky. We're, we're, we're rich with good hockey players up here. Yeah, I think Marner makes it for sure, but uh, yeah, it, it's going to be really interesting. It's going to be super interesting, this team, if uh, if we go, as I say, and I assume we are. I I don't think that anyone's really talking about a boycott at this point, uh, and I don't think that anyone's really talking about COVID as keeping anyone home now, but boy, it's um, it, it'll be a new-looking team, I think. It really will, and, and that's, you know, that's probably a good thing. It's probably, after a while, it probably gets boring just to have the same the same 12 or 13 core guys again and again and again, even if they're really good. It, it, well, you know, it, 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 it's good to bring in some fresh blood. It's never boring if you win. If you know you can, if they want Gretzky to suit up and he can go out and help us win, that's a good choice. Um, because at the end of the day, end of the day, you have to win. And pardon me, if you if you shift your focus more to young guys and they don't win going to say, you know, we all said Tavares should have been there and he might have been the difference because the kids couldn't get it done. They didn't have the experience at the international level. It's easy to throw stones. 
But if you make a bunch of changes and you win, you become a genius. I, I think uh, I, I think we will be going to the Winter Olympics now that the two Michaels are home. I think it would have been a challenge if they weren't. I think you may have been very right about that one. Don, speaking of baseball, there were some numbers, final numbers that were out this year that someone had collated. I mean, they're easy to find, I suppose, now, but I had not thought to look for it. And then when it was posted, I my jaw kind of hit the floor. This year, Major League Baseball players hit 244. It's the lowest average since 1968. 244. Is that hurting the game, do you think? Or is there enough other stuff going on in the game that they've done well that a bad batting average doesn't really matter? Well, I I need more stats um, to make a full assessment of it, but if the Blue Jays are only averaging 244 and hitting more home runs than anybody else in the game, that's pretty exciting. So, I mean, if home runs are up, I mean, that's part of the show, right? So I don't think people are, are quite as interested in singles and doubles as they are home runs and uh, runs scored and so on. Uh, I mean, is the average down a little bit because guys are taking walks, which which don't factor into the um, averages, I understand that, but... You know, is the run production up and our home runs up? And if that's it, I mean, I don't know if you're a Blue Jay fan. It was a pretty exciting uh, September and October for you. Yeah, you know, the, the argument with this one is that it's long. A lot of people have said, because strikeouts were the big problem. And so they, they did that thing this year, remember, where the umpires check the hat and the glove to make sure there was no sticky stuff on the pitcher's hands to slow down spin rate because yep. they wanted to cut down on strikeouts with the idea being we want more balls put in play because watching it's a single, it's a double, it's a triple, it's a ground ball, whatever it is, a ball in play is way more exciting than just watching a guy blow another guy away with a strikeout. And so, you know, if that's the argument that we need to have more action, a batting average low since 1968 is a bad thing. But you're right. If, if, if we're okay with fewer hits, but when they do hit them, they're going a mile. If, if that's good, I guess that's the trade-off. And is and and are there more strikeouts because guys are swinging for the fences? Yes. Right? So that, that equates back into your home run ratio, right? Like if home runs are up and that's the straw that tur- uh, stirs the drink, maybe that's a good thing. Maybe they're... Maybe it is. Maybe it's what they want. I mean, all they have to do is make the ball bigger. It's easier <laughs> to hit. Yeah, or let them use a paddle. Or <laughs> I thought mine was a little more practical, but that's something yeah, I'd I come up with. But um, yeah, I, I mean, you know what I mean. If they, I mean, there's been lots of talk about how to how to increase offense, and the game has become more increasingly analytic. I mean. Remember the uh, was it the back catcher who lost um, when he slid at home plate and was it Tampa Bay or something that picked up all the trade secrets on all their batters? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's more information. I saw in one of the games yesterday because I was flipping around, cheering for Washington and uh, at Tampa Bay like I never had before, and uh, I saw I saw the back catcher um, read something that he had in his glove and then put it in his back pocket. Like you know, it's kind of like quarterbacks being given plays from the booth because this is the way these guys are lining up. So this might be a better opportunity. You know, if we run a bit of a screen pass or a slant, you know, so they're getting help from above 
And these guys are actually now taking it out there. It won't be long that the catchers will be able to look at a small screen in their in their mask to tell them the information they've got. So it's so analytical and so technical now that who has the advantage? Maybe the pitchers do. I don't know. I mean, I mean, the game's got uh, to that level. Maybe it's hurting batting averages. Well, you know, and and part of it is you've you've now got starters who, if you have a good start, you're going five innings. And then you're bringing in four relievers to take it home, each throwing 100 miles an hour or close to it for an inning. So you you get to see the same guy twice. He doesn't tire ever, hardly. And everybody that you see has movement and velocity. It's, I mean, it's really – I've always said that the hardest thing in sports to do is to hit a baseball consistently and do it well. And it's way harder now than it ever was before. Way harder now. But, Adon, well, I, I do wonder – with what we're talking about, if you could, could a guy like Ishiro or a guy like Tony Gwynn, who were hitting 350 and or 330, 340, 350 consistently, great contact hitters, but they slapped the ball all over the place. Do they even have a place in the game today if they were to come up? Or are we only looking for power? No, you're looking for guys like that to go on ahead of Laddie, aren't you? Or Springer. I mean, somebody's got to score the runs, and if you're if you're not going to get a lot of hits, have a spray hitter. I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I mean, I still can't figure out when they put the shift on why guys don't lay bunts down the third baseline. Yep, agreed. I mean, isn't that a guaranteed? Isn't that a guaranteed hit? Holy crap! Nobody ever does it. It doesn't make any sense to me. It's nuts. But uh, you, you know, you're gonna. I think because it's analyzed now. This stuff of guys pitching 100 miles an hour and everybody's 92 to 95 and the young guy ranks it up to 97, that's okay, but these guys adapt. Like the good players are going, okay, everybody's throwing 95 miles an hour. Here's, I've got to be able to hit 95-mile-an-hour fastballs. And they do. Like, if you hit something that's going 95 or 97 miles an hour and you hit it square, I mean, the thing's going to land in my backyard from the Sky Dome. Yeah, it's just really, really hard to do it. It, it is, and you're right. It's it's in addition to the speed, it's the movement on the thing. I mean, you look at some. I I don't know if I'd want to go to bat because if these guys, you know, that 100 mile an hour um, fastball, if they lose it a little bit, you don't want to get that right in that yap. I'll tell you. Of course, now half of them are almost wearing goalie masks up there. I don't blame them. No, I don't either. And I may have I may have talked about this before, but there was a, a guy for the Kansas City newspaper years ago that criticized a player on the Royals. Uh, the bases were loaded and they were down by a run in the ninth inning and there was an inside pitch and the guy got out of the way. And the reporter said, it's an inside pitch with the bases loaded. Get hit by the pitch so you can drive in the run and tie the game. And then afterwards, I guess some of the players called him on it and said, have you ever been hit by a 98-mile-an-hour pitch? And so he goes, look, if I'm going to write about this, I better do it. So he went down with the Royals guys into the underground batting cage under Royal Stadium and had them crank up the pitching machine to 95 and aim it at his side. And this guy was probably 60 years old, and he took a 95-mile-an-hour heater right in the side of his abdomen. And the bruise that that thing left was the size of a pizza. I mean, it was incredible what it did. So, like, I, I'm with you. It, it's, it's frightening to be up there for sure. It's hard to do. 
but I, I don't know. I, I just, I look at a guy like if Ishiro was coming along today, I just, I, I think a lot of teams would say, you got to try and change them. You got to change your launch angle. You got to try and drive for more power. And I would say what you just said, if you've got a guy that can get 200, 220 hits a year, spraying it all over the place and, and making the team honest by taking the shift out of play, I want that guy every time. Yeah. And there's, and, and, and there's still lots of room for him. So let me ask you this question about this guy in Kansas City. Was, was he a sports writer? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he was a sports writer. And he just, it was one of those things that you say, hey, he should have taken the ball. He should have got hit. And then afterwards it was like, well, wait a second. I've never done that. Maybe it really hurts. <laughs> but but back to sit back to Ishiro or Tony Gwynn or whatever for a second. So I, I tend to agree with you that I would want a guy like that on my team. And I also tend to think that there have to be a bunch of those guys out there. Not everybody is going to hit for power, but there have to be guys who, maybe not to the same extent, those guys were savants at what they did, but there have to be guys that can hit 330 by slapping the ball around. Why are none of them, unless we're just completely missing them, because everybody is now trying to hit for power, why do we see none of them in the game? I can't think of, an, I can't think of a player who's like that now. No, but not that, not that does it uh, for a living. Uh, like Gwyn or Rod Carew or somebody like right. that. But uh, if you do watch, and I know you do, but if people watch how players swing for the fences when it's uh, three and 3-0 and because they know they're going to get a strike and how they change things and their stance sometimes when it's a full count, you know, their approach to then uh, playing the game maybe isn't to hit it out. It's like the home run guys are going to try and hit it out all the time. But the more average guys are saying, I just got to get on base here. So they do change how they approach depending on the count. I don't think it's as effective as it used to be, but they try to. I mean, mean, Vladdy's not trying to slap anything anywhere. He's just trying to slap it over the right field fence or the left field fence. He's not worried about getting a single. That's no longer a slap, I don't think. I don't think you can say he slapped it over the fence unless you're, it's a, unless you're one of those Russian guys in that world slapping competition that you occasionally can see on Facebook where they nearly kill each other. That's a, that's a slap over the fence. Uh, otherwise, I don't think a slap is the appropriate word. Have you ever seen no, those guys? Not. Yeah. I, that's why I'm laughing. I'm going like, wow, that looks like fun. Yeah. I, how how much vodka have you had to consume to sign up for the world slapping oh. competition against that one guy who's won it every year and nearly spins <laughs> your head around like a screw when he hits you? Well, it's, it's not much different than the old ultimate fighting. They kick you in the head. Yeah, but at least with that, you can defend yourself and you can do something. With this, you each get, if though if you've never seen it, Go online tonight and look up slapping competition, Russian slapping competition. With this one, you get a turn to wallop the other guy, and then he gets a turn to wallop you. And it goes until someone is either knocked out cold or quits. But there's this one guy who's (laughs) about 400 pounds, and he measures you by taking, like, warm-up movements to the side of your head. And then he... (laughs) It's amazing people's heads haven't popped right off when he hits you. Oh dear. And, and he always, if you notice one of the things that seems he does, he always hits you over the ear. So your one eardrum is going to pop every time. (laughs) Just horrible, 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 horrible. 
I'm waiting for the first. Well, you know what? You said Ultimate Fighting, Don. It, it's inevitable that that's going to be a sport that someone picks up, right? And start showing on TSN or something. Oh, sure it is. It's inevitable. There'll, there'll be competitions. And, and I, I'm thinking one of the qualifications to being a winner in that sport would be size and not being very bright. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Not being very bright. And essentially having no firing synapses in one half of your head. Yes. No so nerve. We'd endings. like to interview the we'd like to win interview the winner, but he can't put a sentence together. So we'll just congratulate him. That's right. His his jaw had when it landed in the room over one, so he can't speak right now. But otherwise, you know, <laughs> congratulations. You won your twelve dollars in prize money. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on nine hundred CHML. One of those stories that you look at and you realize how different the world of professional athletics is from the world that every other human being lives in. Kyrie Irving, who's an NBA player, plays for the um, Brooklyn Nets. He is an anti-vaxxer and he is going to be butting into the NBA's new rules about vaccines that say you have to have it in order to play. And he's saying, I don't care. So he's going to probably miss at least half his games, which is going to cost him three over $380,000 a game. Almost more than $15 million for this season if he sticks to this and won't bend and only plays his home games and doesn't go on the road anywhere. And I guess misses some of his home games too. I'm not sure what the rules are there. Anyway, when we look at this, do we say, you know... I applaud you for standing up for your beliefs. I mean, you're putting your money where your mouth is. So even if we disagree with you, hey, can't argue with the fact that you're willing to sacrifice 15 and a half million bucks to do what you believe in. Or do we look at this and go, you are the world's biggest moron. What are you doing? To me, it's a pretty easy statement, but I'm double vaccinated. So I believe in the science. Um, and I have to respect people that choose not to, and, you know, you're making those choices. It's, it's always interesting that the people that don't want to get vaccinated, and this is an easy one that say, I'm not doing it. And yet they go to the hospital and they start taking medication. They didn't, they don't have a clue on what that medication's long-term effects will have on them. Uh, because a lot of the cures for it and things they're using, are as experimental as and probably more so than the vaccines if that's what you want to do and you that's what makes you know you feel good about yourself then that's what you should do but to lose that kind of money on that principle um seems odd to a guy that's never made 13 million dollars a year it really does doesn't and that's what i say this is a a world that we don't grasp. I mean, the idea that you're going to make $381,181.22 U.S. So that's probably closer to 500. That's close to half a million dollars Canadian for every game you play is something that I, I, I can't fathom that. I don't understand what that is. And you, Don, if that was me, you know, because we don't live in that world, if that was me and you said, you know what? Even if you are the most staunch anti-vaxxer, I'm paying you $500,000 to get your vaccine. Maybe this speaks to my absence of principle or something, but I'm like, yeah, okay, where do you want to stick the needle? I'll, I'll take well, anything. <laughs> what are you putting into me? 
Go for it. No, but I, uh, the other thing we can't put into perspective, first of all, <clears throat> who can put into perspective $385,000 a game, right? <clears throat> the other thing you can't put into perspective is how much he's made over his career and the fact that he could make $13 million this year. So if you're going to have to squeeze by on $13 million instead of $26 million, nobody can comprehend that either. I mean, you can't comprehend the per-game stipend that they get, but I don't know this dude. He's probably already made $100 million playing basketball or $70 million playing basketball. He could quit today and not play basketball again. And we've seen athletes walk away from pretty substantial contracts that could have eked out a couple more years. Lots of people have respect for that. Yeah. You know, yeah, I mean, no, uh, and that's, uh, that's where the question comes the Man- from. I'm- the Manning brothers saying like they, they all could have jumped on another team and made $10 million playing not at their, at the level that they expected themselves, but they have enough respect for themselves to say, you know, I'm going to go out on a high. Who's the guy in Denver? His name is escaping. The won two Super Bowls in, in a row and retired. John yeah. Elway. Uh, John Elway. Right. Yeah. He's going. Yeah. I'm going out. I'm going out on the top of on on the top of my game, and so I, maybe I'm leaving ten million dollars on the table. The guy's already a gazillionaire. You and I think he's crazy. He's a gazillionaire, <clears throat> and and this basketball player has all the money he's ever going to need for the rest of his life. So giving up thirteen million to him might be like you giving up ten grand on principle. Uh, I don't think it would be thirteen grand. I think that I. For, for these guys, this amount of money, again, if you've, well, maybe maybe that's a good equivalent. I don't know. No, no, that wouldn't be a good equivalent because you're talking about 180th of your salary. You're talking about an 80th of your salary and you're talking this kind of money and it's just like it's, he's making something like $38 million this year. I, I haven't yeah, done the math. I mean, I mean would, would you, on principle, give up half of your wages in his, for a year? Um, I couldn't afford it. But again, your point is if you've already made a hundred million and you've got your mansion and it's paid off and you've got your guest, your, your, your summer home and it's paid off and you've got your fleet of cars and it's paid off and you've got your jewelry and it's paid off and you've got your plane and it's paid off and you've got your boats and it's paid off. Who cares? I guess at some point, like you can say, yeah, I don't need that 15 million. I'm, I'm good. I, I, but I just, it's not, it's, it's so foreign to the average person. Like Don, what I just said about the $500,000 for vaccine. I, I know there are people out there who truly are philosophically or medically opposed and they have staunch opposition to it. They really, they're not doing it for show. They truly believe that they won't take the vaccine. But I would love to know how many of those people, if you said to them, we'll give you one of Kyrie Irving's game checks, one, if you get the vaccine, how many of those people who are hesitant or opposed would say, wait a sec, you're going to give me 500,000 to get this. All right. I'm willing to rethink my position. And I bet the number is an awful lot. Well, the numbers are changing now that they can't get into restaurants. Right. I mean, the government, whether it's, you appreciate their actions or how they're going about doing their business and trying to get as many people vaccinated as not. Um, you know, if you're not going to be able to drive a bus or you're not going to be able to do your job or you're not going to be able to get into a restaurant, I mean, 
we're up over 80%. So they're, they're, in essence, those restrictions are accomplishing what the government want. But if you're a conspiracy theory guy and think the government are placing microchips in so they know where we are, I got news for you. If you've got a, if you've got a iPhone or, you know, any kind of a phone, they can find out where you are if they want to anyways. I mean, they pick it up off the pings. If, if you, uh, if, if there's a guy who shoots a couple people and they know his cell number, they can follow that guy around off the cell yep, towers. Yep. They know where we are if they want to. But you know what? The $500,000 example to get your shot for one of Kyrie Irving's paychecks, I think a lot of people would do it. Now go and say, all right, we'll give you Kyrie Irving's entire sacrificed money for the year to get your, your shot. I I would have a hard time believing many people would say, wait a second, now you're telling me I'm going to get $15 million to get a needle? I, I know there are some people who would stand by their principles, but boy, I think that would be a small, small, small number, which just shows you how crazy this amount of money is that we're talking about. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I it can't put it in perspective. No, it's just, it's, I, I, who I can? Who can, Don? I don't, yeah, I, mean, I, guess I don't know, I don't know who can. Um, yeah, it's, it's pretty hard to fathom, really. But yep. anyway, if he's that principled, good for him. He's putting if his, he's, yep. as you if said, that, putting his money where his mouth is. If he's that got, if he's willing to do that, again, I think probably it's, it's, it, it, he's having a different conversation than we are because of what he's made before. But if he's willing to do that, you know, I think he's an idiot, but how do you argue with that? The, the bigger, the bigger, the problem, the place I would have the argument is if he said, I expect to be paid because it's in my contract and you can't. Well, then, then we get into a different conversation. But if, as you say, if you're willing to talk the talk and pass up the dough, then who can argue with them? Uh, Don Robertson, always love having you on. Thanks for doing this this Monday. Have yourself a great week. Go ahead and get dried off and uh, warmed up now after being on the porch for a while. <laughs> I will. Thanks, Scott. Enjoyed it. Have a good week. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.